Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me for this episode is Louisa Murray, Chief Operating Officer for UK and Europe at Rails Bank. Welcome to the show, Louisa. Hello. Delighted to be here. It's, uh, it's great to have you on. For everyone listening, this week's episode is all about waking up on the right side of embedded finance. We're going to chat about where the demand for embedded finance is coming from, why banking as a service is a solution and an offering, and what risks may be involved. Oh, and of course, we'll be asking, what exactly is embedded finance? But first, as always, is our news in numbers segment. This is where myself and our guests have gone out and found a topic or a news story with an interesting number to chat about for the weeks. It's traditional that our guest goes first. So you you can can go up first. What story or, or topic has caught your eye recently? Well, I'm starting with employment, particularly in fintech. So found one from Robert Walters that shows there's been a 61% increase in job creation in London for fintech. There's over 1,600 businesses in the fintech sector in the UK. We're expecting that number to double over the next decade. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately for some, 80% of all executives within that space are men. And according to Innovate Finance's report on venture capital investment, just 3% of the 1.7 billion that flowed into UK fintechs went to firms with a female founder. So looking beyond C and D suites, less than a third of total fintech staff are women. So clearly a need to uh, recruit more and retain more diverse base of talent in fintech. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there are there are two great points there. I mean, the one is that the, you know fintech is is absolutely booming and. There's a lot of companies out there looking for, you know, the the next best developers, marketers, uh, founders. And then the other side of that is not all the time the best developers, marketers and founders get found. It seems that, the, you know, like, like I said, there's there's a fintech, a new fintech every day. And there's obviously going to be loads of competition for places. And I, do you think the, the onus is on the, the fintech firms themselves? themselves for attracting the talent rather than you know the talent trying to attract the fintech um yeah absolutely you've got you've got to you've got, people have got to want to work there you know it's great to say we do innovation etc but you've still got to have a workplace that people want to be because you spend an awful long time of your life working so yes it's not all you know paying table tennis and things like that more and more people want to see you know long-term benefits as well yeah, and how, how do you think that the obviously the quintessential question, how do you think you know, the pandemic has affected recruitment in fintech? I mean, obviously, the elephant in the room is is the whole working from home factor. But how do you think it's, it's, it's affected things for the industry? And how do you think changes will have occurred because of? Yeah, so so I suppose from from our side, we've we went from about 120 people to pretty much triple our size within a year over the pandemic. Um, so an awful lot of people were onboarded remotely. We had to make some really big changes with regards to you know how people start at work. You know, you can't just throw them a laptop and expect them expect them to get the culture of the company and all the training that needs to be done. So I think going forward from here as well, what we're going to do, we've got a nice new office that's opening in September, but what we're really uh, aiming to be is flexible. So we know some people are not quite comfortable coming back into the office and some are desperately wanting to come in back in the office. So we're ensuring we're flexible for everyone. Yeah, and uh, I mean, on, on that aspect as well, how do you feel? Do you think there's a difference for uh, a fintech 
trying to attract you know people fresh out of university which is i imagine the usual target demographic when they're looking for new people versus you know the some fintechs are out there looking for c-level people who perhaps might not be coming from that sort of new age background maybe a person who's been at a bank for 10 years do you think uh, you need a different strategy for those things or do you think there's a way that you can approach both yeah, I mean, we, we've absolutely approached both with Gusto, actually. So there's a lot of advertising, but there's a lot of social media to attract the right people. So, you know, it, you've got to have that diversity. You know, I, I know people say a lot about that grey hair with the, the enthusiasm and uh, the new ideas that, that the grads will bring. They always say that the, the best way to, to perform a segue in, in podcasting or any media is to pretend like whatever segue you do is completely natural and fine. But I'm fi- to be honest, uh, listeners, I'm finding it difficult to segue between recruitment and my next story. So I'm just going to jarringly switch across. My story for the news and numbers this week, and my number, in fact, is $58 million. And that is the amount of money that Plaid has had to uh, pay to settle historical privacy issues. Uh, the settlement comes after six months of negotiation and mediation between Plaid and a number of class action complainants. It uh, concerns the storage of user data by Plaid, which, in case you are unaware of Plaid, connects, a bank, connects people to bank accounts and ties them together to other third-party services. You basically open banking stick. The plaintiffs allege in their lawsuit that Plaid exploited its position as a middleman to collect banking data and sell transaction histories without their knowledge. Plaid is accused of scraping details on deposits, withdrawals, transfers and purchases for users who did not connect their account to the application or give it permission. As a result, if if a court approves the settlement, then Plaid will have to make any changes to its user interface as necessary and also reduce the level of data it stores. Michael Rhodes, lead counsel for Plaid, said as a result of the settlement that uh, these are claims which go back to the earliest days of the company and no reflection on today's Plaid. Apparently, up to 98 million people could be affected by the settlement. So if all of them were to get involved, they would each receive an estimated 60 cents. Now... This story sort of, um, I think it, it, it probably typifies when people think about open banking and the ease of use, there are often, you know, sometimes risks when it comes to regulation and compliance that need to be considered. And it's sometimes, although, you know, it, go, it makes it seem as if it's easy as one, two, three, sometimes it's never just as easy as one, two, three. What, what, what do you think, Louise? Do you think, like I said, it can, there can be difficulties hidden under the water when it comes to implementation of open banking systems? Yeah, I'm sure there can be. Yeah, And if they said it was in the early days, I have to say the experience I have had of working with Plaid have been the opposite to that. Really professional and team that I look forward to doing a lot of business with in the future, actually. So they're, they're both a customer and a partner of Rails Bank. And as I say, we've, we've seen nothing but professionalism from them. So if there was issues, I'm sure it was back in the day. But going forward, yeah, I'm, I'm very confident in the team and, and the absolutely and, and do you think when it comes to open banking there can be for any company not just plaid when setting up you know it's uh there, there are always technological and operational risks when it comes to trying to connect up different sources of information like this absolutely but that's not just fintech is it it's banking and, and technology absolutely with innovation, there is there does come some risks. And I come from 20 years of trading, plus, or 20 years plus of trading. So, yeah, I'm very, very aware of taking a risk-based approach to stuff as well. So here we are in part two of the podcast. 
This is our more interview styled section where we focus the discussion down into a specific industry topic or sector. Uh, we're going to dive into the main topic in just a moment. But first, I'm just going to give Louisa a chance, uh, a minute or two to give us a rundown on RailsBank, uh, a little bit more about herself and her position. So take it away, Louisa. Okay, thank you for that. I'm Louisa Murray. I've been at RailsBank pretty much since inception. So I was employee number four. And as I said before, we're probably around 400 at the moment. My background is trading and finance. So I had 20 plus years trading in the city. I was one of the first women traders at Barclays and traded swaps there actually when it was the Deutschmark before the Euro. So that's how old I am. Uh, I'm proud of it, I have to say. So I absolutely loved the idea of Rails bank when I bumped into the founders, Nigel and Clive, at one of the WeWorks, the one in, in Moorgate. Um, we started talking. I started helping that, them out on their regulated entity. And when the platform went live, I said to them both, oh, well, I'd love to love to be involved with this. I'd absolutely seen the use case. And and luckily, they um, said, yes, I could join. And we started speaking to all the, all the prospects of Rails Bank, lots of startups in those days. But literally for the first 18 months or so, you know, I had the, had the pleasure of speaking to every single customer of Rails Bank. So it was great to, to see why they wanted to use us and, you know, the hopes and dreams of all the different companies. So that's carried on. And um, we built the sales team globally. And more recently, last October, I took over the role of COO of UK and Europe. So we've got uh, a couple of hundred customers, all sorts of industries. But the ethos of us is to allow any type of company, whether that's an insurance company or you know, fintech company or a brand to build any type of financial product use case on us and, and embed it into their app or their platform. So lots of exciting customers we're working with and yeah, hopefully lots more on our global journey. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned, and as is the topic of this podcast, it's all about embedded finance. And uh, I think it's a subject that gets a lot of people very excited. But it seems that also everyone seems to have their own different definition of what embedded finance is from you know, simple, uh, the creation of simple pro- financial products to a utopian ideal where we're entirely bank agnostic. But what, what's uh, what's your particular definition of, of embedded finance? Right, sure. So so we've got a very distinct view of embedded finance and the Railsman platform actually enables that vision. So as I said before, we allow any company, whether they're an insurance company, retail or a new fintech, to embed our capabilities and components into their app or platform. So that means not just technology, that's regulation as well. So the essence of it is basically it's not just building new financial products, it's about building new experiences where finance embeds seamlessly into the different ecosystems that we use every day. So very much enhancing experiences. Great. Yeah. And, and you know, the thing I, I always think with embedded finance is that sometimes, or, or well, actually with many things within the fintech sector, is that uh, if a lot of people within the sector can get very excited about the trends and products and services. But if you went out onto the man on the street and asked them if they really wanted it, they would ask you what you they would think you've grown an extra head or something. So, you know, <laughs> to what extent is, is embedded finance a demand from the end user who may not even know what it really is? And what extent is it a demand from the, from the corporate side, from the banking side, from the, the, the commercial user's side? Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. The customer doesn't know what fintech is, but it is customer-led. So as a consumer, financial consumer, we will be expecting far more from our financial provider than ever before. 
So it's early days on that. And as you say, the man on the street needs to know the art of the possible, but you know, there's more and more competition for this. So I think we're sitting on the cusp of a new era for those consumers, but something you know, will we'll get results and that they will dramatically improve financial inclusivity for this as well. I like that the art of the possible. I feel I feel like that's uh, probably also something else. That if you if you said it to the the man or woman on the street, they would they would wonder what you were you were talking about. Well, it's it's not just for them. It's not just the art of the possible for the man or woman on the street, but also the companies mm. as well. So you know we could we could be talking about a brand here that you know absolutely thinks things are fine. But things could be a lot better. There could be a huge amount more engagement with their customers. And, and it's being able to explain to them easily and in human language what they, those kind of possibilities could be. Exactly. And, and like, uh, from, from your perspective, when you're speaking to these companies, how many perhaps that may not be, if they're not fintech adjacent, they're not, not at all au fait with the, with the realms of financial services, how, how often do they see and how often can, do they really want to grasp the opportunities of bringing finance into their platforms natively? Yeah, I think it's not an overnight conversation. And, you know, you can often go into these places to talk about other things and then, you know, get into to further conversations. Now, not everyone wants to be a bank, for sure, but everyone wants more engagement with their customers and being able to provide more day-to-day products that, you know, enhance their customers, I think is compelling for everyone. And if you can just explain it in human-centric language, it's not all high finance. It's It really is, you know, making payments or providing loyalty programs and things like that. It's, they can't fail to see the, the advantages of it. Yeah, and I, I, one of the things that I think this, this was something that, that, that someone said to me a long time ago, and it was actually in reference to fintech as opposed to embedded finance in particular, about how financial services firms and banks risk becoming utility companies. So if there's a banker listening to this podcast and thinking, well, hold on, this is eating our lunch a little bit. How can embedded finance also help financial institutions, not just the, the end company? Well, we're always going to need those financial institutions. You know, they're seen as the as the better word for a bank but actually holding the money you know the, the, the safety net of all our funds and uh, or the vault rather that's the that's the word I'm looking for so the innovation can be built on top of them but at the end of the day and overnight the money sits in the vault so they'll they can still see money flows but they can see a, a wider spectrum of companies actually using their services but via fintech providers and when it comes to companies and, and also, like I said, fintech adjacent firms turning to banking as a service and embedded finance as a solution or indeed as an offering. And I, I think it's always important that we talk about the hurdles and challenges that can come with new technology as well. So what things need to be taken into account when, when trying to provide this service? I mean, uh, surely it's, it's not as simple as flicking a switch and off you go. No, 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 no. So there's a huge amount to be taken into account. So it's not just the technology, it's the risk, the compliance and everything. And ideally, that needs to be built into it. And, you know, from the start, and not just as an afterthought. So we, um, when I was trading many, many years ago, the compliance function was in a different building. But now it's literally baked into our day-to-day life and, and so important. The call before this, we, you know, we were discussing our risk policies and the type of customers we want to work with. So as a provider of 
banking as a service and embedded finance, we have to be able to provide the, the total package. So not just bits of it. And if I'm a, I'm a brand, I want to come to somebody where I can get the whole kit and caboodle, as it were. So yeah, it, it's highly important to, to be able to offer the whole value chain. Yeah. In fact, the growing need for a lot of firms in financial services and in, I think across a lot of verticals, especially since the pandemic, is that a increased desire for rapid time to market. So how, yeah. how do you deal with, with that sort of demand of we want a, a six month turnaround rather than a, a one or two year deployment? Is it a strategic thing, a technological thing? It's, it's absolutely a, a, a huge value. I would say it's a huge value for us. We, from from the very beginning, we've always been about prototyping, launching and scale. And there's no point prototyping, taking that a year and the, the market's moved on since then. So we've worked with some small companies, we've worked with some large brands on that prototyping. So literally getting to market, putting a card or a product in an end user's hand in a couple of months. We've done prototypes in three days, which was great fun. And when we did that with with an insurance company, they actually they actually invested in us. And one of the um, that became a board member. But being serious on this, that you really do want to be able to test these products quickly. If they work, fantastic. You can stay on the Rousebound platform and you can scale that. Or fine, it hasn't cost you hundreds of thousands of pounds. You've got the data, maybe whether that data is good or bad. You've got it quickly and you can move on so it's been extremely important to us that we could offer that to our customers and it, and it, and it works in two ways so for the startups it gets buy-in potentially with investors they can put a card in someone's hand and that's super impressive or with the larger companies it gets buy-in from the boards potentially to digitalize you know, products quicker than maybe they thought they should and again it's all um, about showcasing what can be done exactly when it comes to as I said earlier, there are a lot people have different definitions for embedded finance. But what's the sort of the the Jetsons like utopian end goal of of embedded finance? Is it something as ordinary, in air quotes, as having a ubiquity? Like people used to think that it was madness that everyone would be banking on their mobiles, and yet here we are. Is it for it to become a commonplace like that, or is it to is it to really to become a really revolutionary part of the financial services sector? I suppose. We've moved so quickly and gone such a long way in such a short period of time. I, d- I don't, I wouldn't know what the utopia is actually, and and I think it's almost limitless from you and I talking here today. So, embedded finance is focused on powering the financial consumer, shaking off restraints and the legacy that we've had for so long. So now I think the world's our oyster, and I look forward to the different stages that we're going to go through. But utopia, I can't even imagine what that would be. So here we are in part three for everybody's favorite, the fintech jail. This is where we ask for an industry term, a buzzword, a trend, a company, a, a person even, though we haven't had that yet, that our guest has seen or heard enough of. I will then uh, decide whether it deserves a place in the jail, uh, which is already fit to bursting with all kinds of buzzwords. Or if it's already in there, it, whether it deserves an extended sentence, no matter how close its metaphorical parole hearing may be. We'll turn it around at the door. So, Louisa, what buzzword or, or, or trendy topic do you wish was banished to our financial jail? So, I'm beginning to hate the phrase customer-centric. 
customer centric. Okay. I think, yes. I, I think I have an inkling of where your argument may, may be coming from, but please, please, oh, really? please, please away. Is it, is it that perhaps that everything should be customer centric? Yeah. So to us at Rails Bank, it implies that we've just discovered customers and it's like, woohoo, it's a major revelation. So I deal with customers and, and have done pretty much from day one with Rails Bank every hour of my working day. So you forget about your customer, you're absolutely finished. And, and when we speak to everyone that works at Rails Bank, if they're problem solving, it's always from the customer's point of view. Don't do not have a conversation with us, with anyone in, in our executive committee, unless you mention the customer. So if we hadn't engaged with our customers on day one when we started Rails Bank, we wouldn't have our loyalty or just wouldn't have what we've got today and what we've you know, managed to build. So let's not pretend it, it, it hasn't always been the focus and let's just carry on as it should be. So yeah, don't like it. Interesting. I, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot, there are a few phrases in our industry which have emerged to sort of become a, a catch-all in, I think customer-centric is definitely one of those. I think if you, like you said, I, I don't think I've met a company that has come out into the market and said, we're not customer-centric. We absolutely yes. do not want to deal with what our customers' pain points are. In fact, we want to create pain points for our customers. So yeah, how often do you see this from companies? Is, is it something you're seeing a lot more or is it just something that's been bugged? Yeah, it's very buzzy. Yeah, very, very much a buzzword. So yeah, it's yeah, it, it's got to be at the at the very heart of your company. Naturally, you shouldn't be ramming it down everyone's throats. So I've I've just been going through our archives actually recently, and, and interestingly enough, I've actually found that embedded finance is currently in the jail. <laughs> what well, can I yeah, get? Yeah, absolutely. Out? You can argue to get it out. I'll give you the the reasons we had in here. It's actually, we were a bit harsh, actually, in the first season of What the Fintech. We gave a lot of things life. Um, so Embedded <laughs> Finance is currently in quarantine. But the reason okay. given by our guest at the time was that every interaction we have already has something to do with money. So it is, by, by its definition, already embedded. Investors created the term because they are inventing an industry. It's like saying we're going to invest in mobile. Everything is mobile. We're investing in software. Everything is software. And that firms should get straight to the point. What do you say to that? Let me think about that. But is that so that they're saying it's actually there already was there before fintech? Yeah, um, since everything has a, everything we do has something to do with money, it's by definition already embedded in our life. Hmm. I suppose this is a, an extension of that because it has been embedded with financial services companies. But what we're actually saying here is that we want to embed it in other types of companies. So it hasn't naturally been involved when you're uh, signing up for a sports club and or you're buying something at Lululemon and things like that. Or what other what other things can I, I talk about? When you're you know getting insurance policy, it's been able to offer you better financial experiences. So I would say, yes, it had to a certain extent with financial services companies, but not outside of that realm. And I think that's what we're talking about here is we're embedding it in, in everyday life rather than just your finance life. Yeah, and I think we're, when we sometimes do get entries to the FinTech jail, often they are, um, to use a writing term there, 
it to a point where you know people take them to their the most extreme um yeah. and perhaps some people think that when people talk of embedded finance they're, they're thinking of this jetsons like feature where we will have flying cars I, and also I'm, I'm saying this with the caveat that anyone who goes back and listens to this episode and i will in to be fair i will point i will say the episode if anyone wants to go back episode 17 of season one where you will probably hear me arguing for it going in the jail. Um, oh, right. <laughs> um, uh, Guilty as charged. I, mean, I, I have to, you know, I, I have to be fair. Uh, and that was a while ago. And I have since learned more about embedded finance. Uh, we'll take embedded finance out of quarantine. It was in a quarantine, in an institution for life. I think that was very, very harsh of us. Um, uh, we've given it bail. Yeah, I think we'll give it, we'll give it bail. Um, we'll stick an electronic tag on it. And just in case anyone else wants to have, have a crack at putting it in the jail. But I think, you know, embedded finance is... I'll try and, rehabil- I'll try and rehabilitate it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We'll put it on, on release for the time being on good behaviour. Excellent. Thank you for that. Well, that's all we have time for for this episode. Thanks to Louisa for joining me for a fantastic discussion. Before we sign off, though, we have a chance to plug socials or websites, activities, reports and everything else. Louisa, do you, do you have anything you want to... I would say... Uh, exciting thing, we're actually going to be out and about. Uh, well, hopefully, fingers crossed. So, Rousebanks and um, quite a few members of the team are going to be at Money 2020 this year in Amsterdam. So, look forward to seeing as many of you as we can. Otherwise, Rousebank.com or Louisa at Rousebank.com if you want to contact me and ask me any questions. Fantastic. Exciting times that we're having our fully in-person events back. And as for me, I encourage you, like I said, to go and listen to episode 17 of What the Fintech, the first season, and come and at me and call me a hypocrite on at adhamilton91, or find me on LinkedIn just by searching for my name. As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at at fintechfutures, and on LinkedIn just by searching Fintech Futures and looking for our gorgeous logo with the two Fs. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, then please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service of choice. We'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review, recommending us to a friend, or just tagging us in a LinkedIn post or something on Twitter. Thanks for all support you've given us and any support to come. Uh, We will see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.